Creekside Church this morning. Uh, we're excited to have everyone here. Let's just uh, begin our time with God's Word. Psalm 62 5 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I will not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. You know, we come here this morning and we're just we're reminding ourselves that he's our refuge. He's our rock. He's where we can pour our heart out to. He's the one that we can rest in. Uh, let's just open our time in prayer. Father, we just commit our mourning to you. We just ask for you to uh, encourage us, to remind us of your greatness and your goodness and your love, to remind us of who you are, how, how big you are, God, how great and holy, and yet you care for us. Uh, you, you call us to pour out our hearts to you, to put our trust and our faith and our hope in you. Uh, we just commit our time to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, scoop on today is immediately after, well, not immediately, but about 12 o'clock, we're going to try to have a get-to-know-us lunch. So you may have already, you may be a part of the church, you may have been part of the church for a long time, but you've never been to one of our get-to-know-us lunches. Uh, you're invited. Uh, we're going to share a meal together, and then we're going to share about uh, Creekside Church, uh, what our mission statement is, and some of our core doctrinal beliefs, and that kind of stuff. So give you a feel for who we are, and you can check it out, and we'll be glad to have you. I'd love to have you join us. That'll be in uh, immediately back here in the Fellowship Hall immediately after, not immediately, sorry Steve, not immediately, but soon after uh, the service is done, about, about 12 o'clock we'll start. So uh, that'll be the, the thing we're trying to accomplish there. And then uh, one thing I would like to say is on the 20th of October, we're going to be having another concert of prayer in the evening. So I just ask you to be kind of putting that on your radar screen. We'll be getting some more information out to you about that soon. So if you do happen to be here as a guest and you are here for the very first time, we really do want to welcome you. And we understand, you know, some of you want to come in and slip in and slip out and be incognito and you don't want to know what's to know who you are. But if you would like to let us know who you are, uh, that little tear-off sheet on the bulletin, if you'd fill that out and put it in the pouches as they pass through the offering plate, we'd sure appreciate it. And I also want to say that on that tear-off sheet, uh, some of our church family don't realize that it's an opportunity for you, give, for you to give feedback opportunity for you to share prayer requests, so it's for you too. So let's pray. Father, your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. I must confess, Lord, 
that oftentimes when I read it, too often when I read your word, I, I fail to see it as your communication directly uh, to me. I pray that you would forgive me. I pray that each of us would more consistently see these words on the page in front of us from your word as what you're trying to say to us. Help us to learn, to grow, mature, and develop by your grace. And we pray now, Father, as we open up the word of God that you would receive our worship and praise through the study of your word for your glory. We pray you do your work to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know what is eating Jonah. Last week we saw that what was eating Jonah was the idea that he would actually have to share the gospel or share the message of judgment that would possibly turn the Ninevites from receiving God's wrath. That was eating him. Well, today we're going to see what really ate Jonah, physically what ate Jonah, but actually didn't digest him, it just ate him. And that is this big fish. Hannah Hernard, in her book, Hind's Feet on High Places, tells the story of little much afraid, which becomes a symbol of believers' spiritual journey through life. The story of little much afraid. And in little much afraid's experience, she repeatedly encountered detours on her path. And each of these detours were intended to give her a little better picture of her great and good shepherd. Just as God brings his sheep now down little detours in the path in order to teach us more about our good and great shepherd. In my first game, my first quarter of the first game of my junior year in high school, I was attempting to make a tackle. And I got hit from the side of chop block because the offensive lineman didn't get there soon enough, so he just took me out from the side and blew my knee out. And through that experience, I saw that God taught me to surrender. He taught me his satisfaction. He taught me his sufficiency in life. Jonah had a detour as well. His detour is recorded for us in chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 10. And in this section, we see that he gained a greater grasp of who God was as well. And so chapter 1, verse 17, which we ended with last week, was Jonah being swallowed by the fish. Well, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the prayer of Jonah in the belly of the fish, and then Jonah being expelled onto the beach, gives us a picture of what actually happened and how it all came to place. So it's kind of like... Jonah 1.17 is kind of the overview, and then we fill in the back, back story. If we go, you never watch those movies, you know, or, or shows where they, they show you the scene, and then they go, five years ago. And you go, what? So it's like, okay, we got to backtrack. Well, that's what we're doing here in the book of Jonah, as we see what's going on in his life. And the recipients of God's mercy, as we see in Jonah's life, he learned a deeper grasp of God's compassion. The recipients of God's mercy, when we experience his mercy, it's intended, at least in part, so that we will be more willing 
and passionate to communicate that mercy to other people, in spite of the fact that maybe we didn't even like them before, but we'll realize, hey, God, what God's done for me is something I can't hold into myself. Cyclone fans are rejoicing. They don't have any problem telling people about the victory that they saw yesterday. How much more should we be willing to share the, the victory we have in Jesus with a lost and dying world? And that's what we see in the, in the story of Jonah. His compassion that he experienced was used or intended to be used so that he would express it. So I invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 2, actually the end of chapter 1 and 2. You can, your device, your tablet, your Bible, your Bible under the seat, wherever you want to find it. If you'd turn there with me, I'd appreciate it. We're going to look at Jonah's experience and his prayer, what he experienced and what he prayed that reveals several steps which lead to the realization of God's compassion for us so that we can appreciate it. And as we appreciate it, we'll be more likely to communicate it. I'm in Jonah chapter 1, beginning with verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. So he's in the fish. And now he's praying from the belly of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress. When did he do that? Well, he did that. He says to the Lord, and he answered me, I cried for help from the depths of, the she of Sheol. He got thrown into the sea, and from the depths of the sea he's praying to God, but we don't hear the recorded prayer until after he's in the belly of the fish. Verse 3, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward the, the, your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit." O Lord my God. Now he's in the belly of the fish saying this, okay? You brought me up from the pit. I'm here. O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake your faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Don't know if it was a beach, but dry land, okay. Might have been a rocky beach, but he got up onto the dry land. The first step we see in God's attempt to show Jonah, and I think all of God's people since then, the compassion of God that would propel us to share that compassion is that we we experience discipline from God now I'm going to be going uh, because this is a narrative 
text of Scripture. I'm not following it verse by verse by verse by verse. So some of the same themes are found in other places. So you have the outline in the text, and I'll try to unpack it for you. But it is there for you, and we'll try to keep you on track. So here we have several aspects of this experience of discipline that we should consider. First, what's the source of the discipline? Where does this discipline come from? Notice verse 1. He's praying. And he says this, Jonah prayed to whom? To the Lord, his God. What I really appreciate about the Hebrew is you don't have, a, in, in Hebrew grammar, you don't have a separate uh, pronoun. Hebrew only has consonants. And so what they do is they put vowel markings that give you an indication of the, the possessive forms. And what we see here is his God. And later he talks about my God. And I think, can I say that? Can I say, my God? That he is my God? I believe in God the Father. And in his Son, Jesus. And in the Holy Spirit, the three in one. So he's praying to his God. That's who he's praying to. So we know that when he says in in, in verse 1... Then you read this, he says, he's my God. And then in verse 3, for you, this is the same God that he's praying to, for you cast me into the deep. Who did? God did. God cast him into the deep. And your breakers and your billows, they, they passed over me. His God is responsible for his near drowning in the belly of the fish. And then being rescued into the belly of the fish. I wonder, have you ever felt like you're drowning? Could just be that God was put you in that spot. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about that more. But he put him into the belly as, as his discipline. You know, I've heard of parents who had older children who got arrested. And the kid calls the parent from jail. Hey, Dad. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm kind of in a tough spot here. And the dad says, well, see you in the morning. You know, we're all one bad choice away from something really drastically going wrong. Just one bad choice. God will discipline us. And he disciplined Jonah. I believe he disciplined Jonah. And then we, we see next not only the source of the discipline, but the stimulus for the discipline, which was basically last week's sermon. In other words, why did Jonah experience the discipline of God? I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but if you went back and read chapter 1, verses 3, verse 10, and verse 12, you would see that the reason Jonah was in the belly of the fish was because he was disobedient to God. God said, go talk to the Ninevites. And Jonah was a racist. He didn't like Ninevites. They weren't his people. And so he said, I'm not going. And so that's why he wound up. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 10 is a, a good verse. It says, stern discipline is for him who forsakes the way. Stern discipline is for him who forsakes the way. Jonah's refusal to warn Nineveh was wrong. But see, God's not capricious. That means uh, deliberately wicked. He's not like waiting for us to mess up so he can squish us, you know. Uh, he's not doing that. He's not vindictive at all. He, he disciplines us uh, to promote spiritual maturity. 
The reason God, same reason a parent disciplines their child if they love the child is to promote spiritual maturity in the light, uh, uh, in the child's life. And I think about this. What form does your discipline or your disobedience take? I was thinking about how can we be disobedient? Well, Jonah's disobedience can be our disobedience. Well, specifically, we refuse to share God's truth with people around us, people we don't like, people I really don't want them to experience God's mercy. No, that can be our disobedience. I don't share with them the love of Jesus. That You know, I talked last week about our antagonistic neighbors, our obnoxious co-workers, our annoying relatives. I don't... Unfriendly classmates. Just don't really want them to know about Jesus. It's kind of a good secret. Maybe I don't know I could spend eternity with them for, you know, I have to spend a meal with them. I don't want to spend eternity with them. And we joke about that, but it's not really, really funny. It's really sad. That can be our form of disobedience. It could be idolatry. And this is one that's a really subtle one. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is looking to someone or something else to provide us with what only God can. To provide me with satisfaction. To provide me with sufficiency. To provide me with salvation. It could be our children. It could be a spouse or wanting to have a spouse. It could be possessions. It could be success. It could be recognition, approval, popularity. All these things can be things that we chase after. We can say, yep. But I want to use this for God's glory, as mm-hmm. long as I get credit along the way. That can be an idol. It could be giving God our second best that is our form of disobedience. And in the book of Malachi, is a lot about this. Malachi chapter 1 and chapter 3. It's, God is a great king. Does he not deserve our best? What is the first and greatest commandment? Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Do we really? I don't always. We're supposed to give him everything. And so that can be our form of disobedience. It can be just general stuff. It can be resentment. It can be bitterness, lack of forgiveness. That could be our sin. Not going to, we're just plain disobedience. I remember one of our children, six months old. Okay, now you tell me that kids are not, you know, fallen creatures. Uh, the, the six months old, the, the, the child was crawling around and they, they crawled up on a piece of electronic equipment, you know, and this, they had a hold of it and they were looking at it and, and if they pulled down, they're going to break it. And they looked at me and I said, no. Yanked it. Broke it. I disciplined that child. Absolute wolf. You know the most dangerous words that I've heard Christians say? I know it's wrong, but. I know it's wrong, but. I'm going to do it anyway. It's a dangerous thing to put ourselves in that kind of position. So I think what I'd like to see, what I see in Jonah's life, and when we as believers experience 
discomfort, difficulty. Jonah was in the tossed around in the, in, the, in the sea. But when we see and there's a sudden or persistent illness or where there's some financial struggles are coming our way, relational upheaval, we should at least be willing to say to God, Lord, is there anything in my life, is there any disobedience in my life that you're trying to get my attention with this struggle with? Is there something that I'm not aware of? I think about um, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know me, and try me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. I don't know about you, but that's not as frequent of a prayer as it ought to be in each of our lives. Search me, O God, and, and know me, and try me, and know me, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't want anyone to leave here saying, oh yeah, Pastor Steve said that every time we have a problem, it's because we're sinning. No. In fact, I would say that most, almost most, of our struggles are not as a result of deliberate disobedience. I don't know that for sure. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're a special case, you know. But I, I would just say that most of our sin is not. Most of it is just simply we live in a fallen world, and some of it is that God is using a difficulty to test us. And a test is to, so as to prove our faithfulness. Think of the, the guy Job in the Old Testament where Satan said to, to God, well, yeah, look at this guy. You've blessed him so much, he'll never curse you. And, and God says, okay, have at him. Just don't take his life. God tests us to prove our faithfulness, to, to solidify our faithfulness. But sometimes God does discipline us. That's what we see in the life of Jonah. Jonah wasn't ignorant. Now, you know, here's the deal. And the reason I say this is because most of the time when we're living in disobedience and we get disciplined, we know it. My child, you think at six months of age they didn't know why they got disciplined? I think they knew why. I think they knew why they were doing what they were doing. They were, knew they were being deliberately disobedient. Jonah wasn't ignorant. In chapter 1, in fact, chapter 1, verse 12, what does Jonah say? He says, and he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for you. I, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. He knew. And oftentimes we know as well what's happening. We're not usually oblivious to our own disobedience. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we're Sometimes you are. Then we see the substance uh, of his discipline. And uh, if you look at, with me at verses 3 and 4, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again to your, to your holy temple. And then verses 5 and 6, Water encompassed me to the point of death. A great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. Which is an interesting phrase, because he's in the ocean. But the roots of the mountains is where do the mountains come from? You know, if you've been, uh, any, most mountains are a result of upheaval, you know, and a lot of mountains are underwater. Well, the roots of them are way down deep. I said, "Wow, what did this? What would this be like?" I mean, how many of you have ever actually been to uh, like a? The ocean or a big sea, a big, uh, the, maybe one of the Great Lakes. You been there? Come on, raise your hand. Help me out here. 
Okay, have you ever been there when it was really, really turbulent and the water was nasty? Well, if you go to the, if you go to the West Coast and you go to the Northern uh, Pacific region, it's almost always nasty. At least it seems like it to me. It's not like still waters, you know. You go to still waters, you want to go to the Caribbean, okay? Uh, or down along the Florida panhandle and there, I think. One time in, high, or in college... I was in Daytona Beach, and the Atlantic can get pretty nasty. And at this point in time, it was pretty nasty. The water was really, really turbulent. It was really churning, and there was an undertow. And if you've ever been in the water when there's an undertow, it means that the water underneath is dragging you back out to sea, and it is a very, very strong thing. And so I was young and stupid, and so we went out into the ocean, you know, and we're playing around in the ocean, and we're trying to... Uh, swim fast and catch these waves. I didn't have a surfboard, but we were trying to body surf, and I caught a wave, and I went, and man, I tell you, at the end of that wave, it just, I was just like a rag doll. It was, I was just upside down and all around being thrown and flailed, and I got thrown into the sand on the bottom. Fortunately, it was sand and not coral, and I, I you know, uh, it was like, whoa, that was freaky. Now, Jonah's like, I was overcome. The source of his discipline was God was doing something marvelous. And the language that Jonah uses, interestingly enough, to describe his spot in the ocean is the same language that the psalmist uses. If you would look at at Psalm 42, Psalm 69, Psalm 18, you'd see similar language. But the psalmist is using it figuratively to describe his desperate situation and the attack of his enemies. But, and Jonah's using it literally. He's drawing upon the psalmist and informing us that it's literal or figurative, whether it's literal or figurative, this idea of the overwhelming power of the ocean is oftentimes used in the scriptures to communicate a dreadful situation. The sea was a terrible thing. Isn't it interesting in Revelation 22? It says there will be no more sea. Why do you think that's there? There will be no more turmoil. There will be no more desperate situations. There will be no more tragedy. That's what they saw the sea as. And so he's describing it in the way that only the scripture could communicate. Utter despair. And the point of the discipline is that it's not fun. Not intended to be fun. The, uh, the reformers used this, this phrase, a severe mercy. A severe mercy. That it was a difficult thing, but it was a merciful thing. And God was using this severe mercy in Jonah's life. God's discipline is not fun. It brings us face to face with our own human frailty so that we are acutely aware of God's absolute sovereignty. And it's all for the purpose of our maturity. That's why God disciplines his people. He disciplines his children. Think about the children of Israel wandering around for 40 years. Really? Just because they said, well, these guys are pretty big and we're kind of scared to go in there. And only Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, let's go. And they're saying, oh, not me. I mean, it's, it's pretty. And God says, okay, 40 years. You can have your way. 
God disciplines us. And so sometimes there's an unforeseen or unexpected circumstance that comes into our life. It might be an illness. It might be a, a financial situation. It might be just a work, a trouble at work. And it's like God is trying to get her. At, for me, it was first quarter of my junior year in a football game when I got taken out and my knee got knocked out and blown out. I had to sit and watch the rest of the game from the sidelines, or the rest of the season from the sidelines. And we see the significance of our discipline. What is the end game of our discipline? Psalm or Proverbs 13, verse 24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Which is, the writer of Hebrews picks up Proverbs 13, 24 and quotes it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. The same thing. It's love. Did I say it's for the purpose of maturity? He loves us. Those he disciplines, he loves. Interestingly enough that Proverbs 13.24, the literal translation is, he who loves him turns him earnestly. It means he spares no effort to turn him away from a direction that is harmful and detrimental to him. God's discipline is loving correction that turns us from disobedience. Isn't that why every parent disciplines their child? It's not like I delight in discipline. I mean, parents don't like disciplining their kids. Kids, listen to this. Your parents are not sadistic. They don't just wake up every morning thinking, oh, what wicked thing can I do with my kid today? How can I torment them and drive them nuts? No, they don't like disciplining you, but you push us to the limits. And so, because we love you. Let me tell you this. Your parents don't discipline you. They don't love you. And every one of you wants to know you're loved. You're going to bellyache and moan and gripe. But the thing in your deepest in your heart, you know that this parent loves me because they care enough about me to care how I turn out. God cares how we turn out. What's interesting in Hebrews chapter 12 is he, he goes on to say that this discipline for the moment does not seem to be very pleasant. But it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God cares enough about us to discipline us. And parents, you know, when you have to take away the PS3 or the tablet or the phone games or TV or whatever it happens to be. That's a loving thing. And I would say that's, I mean, for us, we had one of our kids, that was the only thing. I mean, you just had to take something away that that child was so engrossed in. And then you could get their attention. That's the only way. God loves us and disciplines. And so there is this, this experience of discipline which results in an expressed dependence you look at verses 1 and 2 and and verses 4 and 7, look at verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. Ooh, when did he pray? After the discipline. After he had been swallowed by the fish, which God brought to him as a result of his prayer. So God was appointing the fish because he knew that Jonah would be praying while he's descending into the roots of the mountains. And then 
he brought the fish to swallow him up whole. And then in the fish, Jonah was praying. So was Jonah dependent? He was dependent upon God when he was wallowing in the water, but he was also dependent upon God in the belly of the fish. But here he was. He was, he was crawling. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says this. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it. The rod of discipline. The discipline of earthly fathers is modeled after the discipline of our heavenly father. He loves us, disciplines his spiritual children. In the same way, loving earthly fathers are supposed to discipline their earthly children. And the severity of God's discipline is almost always proportional to the obstinance of our disobedience. So it matches. God's not going to punish us more. It's, it's appropriate punishment. That's what I'm trying to say, okay? Using big words to say something very simple. He just uses appropriate punishment. It's appropriate to the age. We lived in Albert City for 22 years. And uh, every morning, except for Sunday mornings, there was a tornado siren that went off at 7 a.m. Every morning... 7 a.m., 12 noon, and 6 p.m., the tornado siren went off. Now, imagine at 7 a.m., now why they did that, you can ask me why they did, we don't know. I wrote a letter once asking, why do you do this? We don't know. That was a response I got from City Hall. We don't know. So, just it. We did it once, we just kept doing it. Um, can you imagine somebody that was, now some of you are like this, you can sleep so soundly that the 7 a.m. whistle just, you don't hear it. Can you imagine the drastic measures that would have to be taken for that person who would sleep through the 7 a.m. whistle to be aroused from sleep if it was really a tornado? We lived a block and a half from the whistle. And our children were small. They got up several times a night. And so sleep was at a premium. You'd have to shake them. Well, we see that God shook Jonah. And when he shakes us, we realize that we need him. And that's why he did. Occasionally, God must employ drastic measures to get our attention. So we reflect uh, and are on our rebellion, and we can be moved towards progress. Jonah's descent into the sea caused him to pray. That's what we see in verse 1. I called out of my distress. At the end of verse 2, he says, And I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Now there's a word for you. Why do they use this word in the Bible? It just means the grave, okay? The, the place of the dead. Now, was he dead? Not yet, but he thought he was. So he wasn't in the grave, but he was thinking, I'm going to be uh, dead soon. And so he prayed. And in verse 4, he says this. So I said, I have, I have been expelled from you. Nevertheless, I will, notice this, I will look toward your holy temple. I will look toward your holy temple. I think he had in mind Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is praying because he had just constructed the temple. 
And on his, on, on his knees with his hands raised to the, to the heavens, he's praying to God Almighty, God, if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray, if they will cry out to you, if they experience pestilence, if they experience famine, if they experience the discipline of God. You can read down through the text. All these things would be the discipline of God for their disobedience. All of the punishment that they would experience. If they would pray to you, would you, and they would turn towards this city where the temple is, which means the presence of God. In the Old Testament, you can read temple, you just read the presence of God because that's where God chose to dwell among them. That was their concept of it. It wasn't like he was housed there, but that was their idea that his presence was there. And so, pray. And I think Jonah is realizing, I'm going to offer my prayers to your temple. God, I'm one of those people that he prayed for. I'm turning my face if I can. I can't. He doesn't know where he's at. He's in the ocean. But figuratively, he's praying to God towards that temple. And he says, I'm praying to you. Despite, nevertheless, yet I will pray. And he understood and believed that God would answer his prayer just as he's promised to answer. Then if you look at verse 7, he says, while I was fainting away. Just about dead. Almost gone. During his descent into darkness, he remembered the Lord. It's kind of one of those deathbed prayers, right? God, help! Wasn't elaborate. And what's interesting, in verse 7, he says, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into, notice the phrase, your holy temple. I prayed to you when I was going down. Now that I'm out, I, I just want to tell you, I remembered you and I prayed to you. And guess what? I know that you answered because I'm here in the belly of the fish. You rescued me and you saved me. Expressed his dependence upon God. He knows he's been delivered. Isn't it sad that sometimes... Most of the time, the most desperate and passionate prayers we pray are when we are the most pitifully needy. We are aware of it. Why do we have to wait to that? Why do we have to wait until we're, you know, fainting away in order to pray sincerely to God? God longs for the, He answers those prayers. Don't get me wrong. Don't, if, you're in the, if you're going down, fainting away to the roots of the mountains, then pray. God will hear. But he wants to hear our prayers all the time. He, he disciplines us, and the discipline results in dependence, and that dependence resulted and led to deliverance. That's chapter 1, verse 17. He's in the belly of the fish. God appointed a fish to swallow him in response to his prayers. And then in verse 2, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord. Now notice the next phrase, which I skipped over before. And he answered me. End of verse 2. You did hear my voice. God answered and heard the psalmist's language in Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6, is again being drawn upon by Jonah to communicate that he serves a merciful and saving God, power over death. All through this, we see the sovereignty of God. God appointed the fish. God cast him into the sea. God brought him up out of the sea. God saved him from the, with the fish. God is at work in a mighty way. And I see here that God is willing to save the disobedient from the discipline, but he's also willing 
to save the unfortunate. <laughs> you know, so all the times when we're not being disciplined, God is still willing to hear our prayers and deliver us from the unfortunate circumstances and the unfortunate things when we call upon him. Notice in verse 2 it says, he, he, he will answer. He, he answers. You will answer. And you know what? He will answer us too. Just as he answered Jonah. And then it says, he will hear us. He will hear us also. He heard me and he will hear us. And at the end of verse 6, you see he says, but you have brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He did. He knows. What does it mean that he hears? Here's something that doesn't happen too often in marriage is hearing. Okay, when I do marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, hearing. Because hearing is this. In this sense, when it says this, hearing is awareness of what is said with appropriate response. It shows a conscious awareness of the person talking and an intelligent and intentional desire to respond appropriately. Not a, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, oh, okay, yeah, mm, yeah. Conscious awareness. God is aware. He hears. In Psalm 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord upon the righteous, his ears are open to our cry. He's ready to hear. He's ready to respond. And he notices, my God. And interesting, my God? Jonah worships the same personal, powerful, and merciful God that we worship. He's my God too. He's your God if you're trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's our God. What I perceived when I after a lot of time, perceived as the discipline of God in that first quarter of the first football game of my junior year was God's disciplining me for looking to find life somewhere other than God. Because I had an idol. You see, God doesn't like idols. And he's willing to take them out of our hands if they become too important. And I cried in my dependence to God. And he delivered me. And he restored me into a devotional relationship with him. And I was delivered. There's a story about R.G. Letourneau. He was a guy who was big industrialist during the 30s. And he had committed to God. He said, I'll give, God will give you get $5,000 to missions every year. But in 1930, he decided that he would not give the $5,000 to God, but he would keep it, and then he would glorify God, uh, you know, in some other way. By 1931, he was $100,000 in debt. In 1931, he decided that he'd give $10,000 to God to make up for the $5,000 he didn't give in 1930, and then to give the $5,000 he gave in 1931, he went on to become one of the wealthiest men in the United States. And God disciplined him for his disobedience. You know, he made a vow. You know, he said, I'm going to give you this money. I'm not saying that you have to give so much. It was he made the vow. And God took him up on the vow. And then when he withheld the vow, then he said, oh, wait a second. <laughs> you know, you need a little wake-up call. And God did it. And God gives this deliverance, God's glory. 
God can and does deliver us from our discipline, but God also does and can deliver us from discomfort and, and difficulty that doesn't relate it to disobedience. And when he does, then the next step in this process is to express our devotion to God. In verses 8 and 9, we see those who regard vain idols forsake your faithfulness. Jonah's realizing that the, the vanity of those people. Now, back chapter 1, when they're all praying, you know, up on the deck of the ship, they're praying for God to somehow, and they're each one praying to their own gods, you know, all gods on deck, because we need to pray and see which one might hit, you know, which God, maybe one of them, if we just pray to enough. And he says he realizes how vain it is. What is a, what's vanity? It's emptiness. It's worthlessness. I have a, uh, I can find it in here. Yeah, there it is. Maybe. Yeah, I have a foreign currency in my Bible. I use that as a bookmark for my reading. It's absolutely worthless. It's probably not even worth the paper it's printed on. I tried to use one of these once when I went back to this country, and they said, oh, you can't use that. It's not any good. Oh, really? Yeah. Vain idols, they're, they're worthless. They're, they're of no benefit, no good. The bio, uh, what, and then they, they forsake faithfulness. Those who worship vain idols forsake their faithfulness. What does that mean? I like the NIV translation. It says that they forfeit the grace and mercy and love that could be theirs. If they were worshiping the true God, they would know the love and grace and mercy of God, but they don't. They worship these idols, and so they forfeit their faithfulness, the faithfulness of God in their lives. Jonah's awareness of the vanity of worshiping idols is accentuated by the victory he received by praying to and searching and looking to his God. That's a waste of time. I know the true God. He saved me and delivered me and rescued me. God got my attention. One instance, there are others, uh, through a, a knee injury. Maybe God's trying to get your attention. And again, don't hear me saying that every difficulty you have is directly related to some sin in your life. I'm not saying that. But isn't it interesting that in James chapter 4, when they talk about the anointing with oil, that they talk about the prayers and your, your sins will be forgiven, somehow indicating that there might be a link between the sickness or the illness and a sin so that if there is some Ill, uh, connection that you confess your sins and then you will be forgiven again it's not always the case I'm not saying that's an absolute thing then in verse 9 Jonah's gratitude results in his commitment to offer physical and verbal praise to God I'm going to praise you these guys that worship the vain isles they got nothing to praise God about but I have everything to praise God and I'm going to keep my vow that's what he said in verse 9 I thought that was interesting I'm going to keep my vow what vow did he make when did he make this vow I don't know, but I think when he was plunging down to the bottoms of the earth, he's like kind of, uh, some of you old-timers, you might remember MASH and Radar O'Reilly saying, God, if you get me out of this, I'm going to you know, make a promise. He made a promise to God. I think he made a promise to God. Okay, I'll go to Nineveh. It's not in the Bible. But he made a vow, and whatever that vow was, he said, I'm going to keep it. And we know that he ended up going to Nineveh. I don't know that there's a connection, but it seems... Likely, And then he makes a statement. He quotes Psalm 3, verse 8. At the end of verse 9, he says, Salvation is from the Lord. Now, what kind of salvation is he talking about? New Testament uh, people, we always say, Oh, yeah, oh, 
Jonah, Jonah got saved. Yeah, he did. From the sea. And most times in the Old Testament, when they're talking about salvation, they're talking about some physical deliverance. But there's a connection between physical salvation and a, and a trajectory of spiritual salvation. I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 45. Uh, verse 17 it says, Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Now that's something different than just getting saved from a fish. And how is it that they're saved? Israel, the people of God, Israel are saved from this into an eternal salvation. Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, it says, And thus all Israel will be saved, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's Spiritual salvation. When God takes away our sins, then we are spiritually saved. Not just physically saved, but spiritually saved. And God, in his infinite mercy, wants to use Jonah as sort of a precursor to communicate what he has communicated all along through the Old Testament, that this eternal salvation is not exclusively for the Jews. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, says this, it says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Get that? Turn to me. And before that, he says, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the only true God, there is no other. One creating light and darkness. That's Isaiah 45. Like about in Isaiah 45 and 46, about five or six times, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And he is the one who says, return to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And how is it that all the ends of the earth are, be, are saved? Well, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 16.31. It's salvation. It's only when we recognize that we are sinful, wicked people, deserving of God's wrath. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we put our faith or our trust in Jesus and his death on the cross is the payment that we deserve, and we yield our life to him, then we are saved spiritually. Then God's promise and invitation in Isaiah 45, 22 becomes personal. All the ends of the earth and be saved. That's what he says. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And the last step is that we are emerge, determined to serve God. Yeah, we're disciplined. And the discipline leads to dependence. And that dependence leads to deliverance. And that deliverance leads to devotion. But that devotion results in being delivered and determined to serve God. That's verse 10. Really kind of graphic here. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Oh, that must have been a glorious experience. Vomited him onto the dry land. He went from the belly to the beach. God orchestrated it. God did it. He worked in it. And interesting that the timing of it all is referred to in verse 17 of chapter 1. And that timing gives us an indication that there's, there's a general sense of the time in which it foreshadows and points ahead to the time that Jesus spent in the grave. 
Not literally, I don't think, literally three days and three nights, but a portion of three days and three nights. It's a general description. And it also points to his glorious resurrection. He came out of it. And Jesus himself refers to it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. And Jonah was expelled so that he could express God's mercy that he had experienced. He could express it to the Ninevites. Um, okay, think for a moment. This is a little quiz. Don't say it out loud, okay? What is your favorite restaurant, if you're from the metro area, in the metro area, if you're not just wherever you live, okay? What is your favorite restaurant? Best food, best service, best price. Think of it. Okay? Now, would you have any problem telling me, personally, what that restaurant is? No. You'd, well, a heartbeat. You would tell me what your favorite restaurant is. Yeah, you got to go here. It's the best food. It's the best prices. You know, it's the best service. It's, it's, it's great. If we have experienced the mercy of God, why are we so reluctant to share what we have so gloriously experienced? Let's share with people the experience of God's mercy, what God has taught us as his followers of Jesus, what he's done for us in bringing us to himself. We should be willing to share it with the lost and dying world. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would commend to you that this story about Jonah is not a fictitious myth, but it's a factual story. And that the God who gloriously delivered this follower of his from the sea to the belly onto the beach is a God who is willing to rescue you and permanently pardon any skeptic, any critic, any person hostile to him if you only will admit that, you know what, I'm a rebel and I reject God, but I realize that I deserve his punishment and I want to accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross as the payment for my sin and I want to turn from my life of self-direction and let the Savior take control. He's willing to save your soul so that you're not only delivered from the belly of the fish, but that you're delivered from eternal damnation. And those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, guess what? You have experienced the mercy of God in your salvation. And almost all of you have experienced God's mercy in rescuing from his discipline. So, let us not be so bullheaded as Jonah. And we're out on the beach, okay? We didn't even have to go into the belly. We're on the beach. So let's go out and share that message with a lost and dying world. And as we break bread and drink the cup, that's the reminder of what we have received. And what we have received, we don't want to keep to ourselves. I tell you, folks, that's the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Other religious systems teach that if you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. And if you're out, we don't want you in. That's not Christianity. It's that all the ends of the earth may be saved. Let's pray. Father, uh, take these words in our Rivet them to our hearts and drive home these truths to us. 
God, help me, help each of us who know you to understand more fully the mercy we have received. Help us to be more passionate about sharing that mercy with a lost and dying world. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that your spirit would work in their hearts and that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ and realize the mercy of God. In him we have redemption, your son Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. As we break this bread, help us to take some time to reflect and to confess any known sin and turn our hearts back and renew that determination to serve you and follow you and that devotion for you for all you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. going to sing one more song and, and pass the offering during that time. Uh, just what an awesome thing it is to be rescued, uh, to go through that experience of needing God to come through and feeling and experiencing his mercy. So let's just bow our heads and thank him. Father, we thank you that uh, like Jonah, uh, those of us who turned our face, who cried out towards your holy temple uh, have been heard. Father, we pray that you would fill us again this morning with grateful hearts, that that joy would overflow uh, into our week, that we would take that that grace, the mercy that we have found, and uh, just be a light for you, that we would not hold it in, we would not be a candle hidden under a basket, that we would shine forth, that we would be a people uh, of priests, ambassadors for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.